Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And you're in for a special episode. In fact, an annual episode, a new annual tradition. We will be doing the best of uh, this year, of course, 2020. And in years going forward, I think we'll probably do this for the basically the holiday episode every year. And so what I did is I went back through all of my podcasts for 2020. Uh, and this year, I, I focused on the tips of the week. Like I went back and after all the 52, I guess, episodes, all the news shows at least had a tip of the week. And I went back and found the best of the best, the cream of the crop. These are ones that are still relevant today. And I think kind of some of the top tips basically for the year. So we will get to that in just a minute. So note a couple things being a best of episode. Some of these things are going to refer to things in the past. Some of these are going to sound a little funny. Like I'm going to jump right into some things and it's a little bit of a disconnect there between them, but there's only so much I could do about that. Uh, there will be a nifty new uh, sound <laughs> in between each of these things to denote which of the, which one's which. And I'm going to tell you which episode and what date they came from right before each one. So it'll sound a little different than my normal episodes do. But uh, hopefully if you missed any of these episodes in the past, or maybe you heard them and forgot to write some of this stuff down, or you never got around to doing the things that I recommended you do, now's your chance. Now, there is a ton of stuff going on in the news, so uh, we will be getting uh, having a big news show in a couple weeks. In particular, we're definitely going to be talking about this whole solar winds government hack fiasco. This It's really amazing. It's still actually unfolding. We're still learning. Uh, so it's probably good to sit on that for a couple of weeks. I'm sure you're hearing plenty about it in the news already, but there's a lot of nuance to this, and I want to dig into you know really what happened and what the real impacts are. So that'll be in a couple of weeks because next week is our 200th episode. I think something else I'll be doing going forward is I'll try to announce the date and the episode at the top of every show. And that will start with the big 200. And I just recorded my interview with Bruce Schneier. He is such a great guy. I cannot wait for you to hear that interview. He is, and he's such a trooper. We had a little bit of a technical difficulties getting that going, but he, he hung in there. He was patient with me and we got it all done. So that's in the can. Just got to get that edited. That will come out Monday, December 28th. And for this huge, huge milestone, 200 episodes, almost four years now that I've been doing this, uh, we've got a lot of great stuff. We had a, we had a fun one for the 100th, but this is going to blow that one away. We've got a lot of prizes uh, over all this time. I've interviewed lots of people from lots of really cool companies and they have graciously provided some really cool stuff, like like even hardware, not just like gift cards or coupons or whatever. We're talking real stuff. So uh, I've got some signed books to give away. I've got some regular non-signed books to give away. I've got some computer hardware to give away for some really cool people. I'm not going to give it all away now. You'll have, you'll have to tune in next week to find out. But it's literally over $1,000 worth of stuff. So you're not going to want to miss that. I'll tell you how to enter the contest next week. There will be multiple winners and multiple ways to enter. Also, it'll be a New Year's resolution episode. I'm going to give you some ideas for things you might want to do in 2021 to improve your privacy and security. And some of the same people that I've reached out to are also going to be providing little audio snippets of their own and giving you their own tips for 2021. So it's really going to be an amazing episode. You do not want to miss it. Uh, in fact, tell your friends and family, tell everybody you know to tune in for the 200th episode. It will definitely be one for the ages. Now, one of my other things I'm trying to do is I was trying to get a bunch of new reviews for the book because, as you recall, the, I couldn't carry forward the reviews from the third edition to the fourth edition, so I lost a ton of really great reviews. Uh, and that's, that is a death sentence on Amazon. You've got to have reviews. So uh, I have been getting some, and, and I've learned that I need to be checking multiple countries because just because somebody posts something in Canada 
doesn't mean it's going to show up at the United States. And of course, by default, being a U.S. person, I tend to look at the U.S. US site. Um, but I've had to go and look at Australia and U- the U.K. and Canada and other places as well, because some of these reviews are showing up there because people listen to this podcast all around the world, which is fantastic. So at this point, though, we're still only at eight total reviews. And one of those is a little cheating because it came in actually before I started this campaign. But uh, for this book, worldwide and English-speaking countries anyway, I've got I've got four in the United States, two in Canada, one in the UK, and one in Australia. And I'm going to read a couple of those for you here in a minute, a couple of new ones that have come in, as I said I would. But again, we're, we're, I'm really trying to get to, I'd love to get to 20, uh, but I'll take 10 by the end of the year. And if you do post a review, just send me an email at reviews at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And, you know, send a little screenshot or a picture of the of your review that you posted, uh, or maybe just cut and paste it so I know that it's yours. Uh, because I can't, you know, a lot of times the username or whatever on Amazon is nothing I can figure out or contact. So so my goal is 10 reviews, and I, I originally was thinking just in the U.S., but I guess I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go for 10 reviews in, in those English-speaking countries. And I suppose if you do post a review, you might want to tell me which country it's in if it's not in the U.S., so I know where to look for it. Uh, but I'm also looking for 10 reviews on the podcast. And for whatever reason, I've got no new reviews on that. Now, I do know that sometimes when you post reviews, they need to be reviewed by Apple or Amazon. And it probably takes a little while for them to post. But I haven't gotten any new reviews for the podcast. So i um, trying to get to 10 each. 10 on Amazon, 10 on iTunes. Uh, there's already 25 on iTunes, but they're all old. Like, I think the most recent one is from 2019. So I really need some some new reviews there as well. So anyway, uh, let me read a couple reviews that I, that have come in since last week. Uh, the first one is from Deborah in the USA. She gave it five stars. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, she said, this is the third version of Kerry Parker's book I have read. He updates it every few years with the newest information, and it is invaluable. It's written in clear English that real people can understand with step-by-step instructions on how to keep your technology safe. The specific tips and diagrams that show you what you should see on your computer, phone, whatever, make it so easy to protect your equipment from being hacked and your information from being stolen. I also like that he recommends free resources where possible so you don't feel like you have to spend a fortune to stay safe. This book is a valuable tool that I will continue to refer to. Thank you, Deborah. That was great. That was a wonderful review. Uh, and then one more from, it just says J, like the letter J uh, in Canada, five stars again. And it says, uh, this is an excellent book on computer security and privacy written in such a way that even those non-technical of us will learn a great deal. I love Carrie's interesting way of explaining things. He is talented in his writing style where he has created a book that is both fun to read, yet so very educational. Not dry at all, like one would expect. I was given this book as a gift, and I'm so pleased. It will be an excellent reference book for me, and I have recommended it to friends and family alike, both technical and non-technical. It would make a wonderful Christmas gift. Thank you, Jay from Canada, and I completely agree. There's still time left. It would, in fact, be a great Christmas gift. And if you buy from A-Press, you can even get 20% off still. I think it goes to the end of the year. Uh, The coupon code you want, uh, if you go to apress.com and look for my book, is DRAGONS2020. Now, there was a couple other reviews. As I said, there was one in Australia and one in the UK that didn't have text in them. If you know who you are and you're listening to the podcast, if you go back and add some text and send me that email, then I will include you in the list of people for the Ask Me Anything session, which I neglected to mention earlier. But once I get to those reviews, if I get enough people to do the review by the end of this year, the end of the calendar year, I will create a private Ask Me Anything session. Probably do it through Facebook Live. I'm not sure how I'll do it exactly yet. But if you send me your review via email, I'll have your contact information then. And I will invite you to this special session. You could ask me, well, you could ask me anything. Uh, Ideally, I would think you'd ask me questions about privacy and security and things like that. But, you know, this is your session. They don't call and ask me anything for nothing. So that will be in January probably. So you've still got a little bit of time left. 
I would love, love, love to get some more reviews. So post a review on Amazon. If it's not on the Amazon in the USA, make sure you tell me where it is posted, uh, which country. Send me a little snippet of it so I know that it's you, and I will use the email address that you sent to me at reviews at firewallsdontstopdragons.com to reach out to you, assuming we meet our goals, for an Ask Me Anything session in January. All right, now please enjoy the best of 2020 episode. Here are some of the best tips of the week from the last year. Episode 149, January 6th. Uh, If you are a Windows 7 user, if you are running Windows 7 operating system, you need to upgrade to Windows 10. Because as of January 14th of 2020, which as of this taping is not much more than a week away, uh, they will stop sending updates, uh, free updates to the operating system, meaning that you will not get security fixes. And as I've said many times on this show, that is a bad thing. Uh, You always want to stay up to date because software has bugs and uh, we find fixes for those bugs all the time. Uh, And you want to get those fixes in it because if you don't have them, you are vulnerable. Windows 7 has been around a really long time. Um, So if you still have Windows 7, that probably means you've got an old computer, which it's not such a bad deal to have an old computer. Um, It's really the software you want to make sure is up to date. And that will lead into the tip of the week because, believe it or not, it is still possible to get the Windows 10 upgrade for free. So basically it's this. Uh, You need to go to the Download Windows 10 webpage. On that site, there's a button that says Download Tool Now. Uh, When you download this thing, it pops you up this window that gives you two choices. It says you can either, uh, basically the first one is you can either directly upgrade the the PC that you're running this tool on. So you've got, let's say you've just got the one Windows 10 machine and you download this tool and you run it. Well, then you can just run this in place and just, uh, it'll just do it right then and there and you'll be done. You'll be done. It'll upgrade the PC that you're on from Windows 7 or 8 or whatever to Windows 10 and you'll be done. However... If you've got more than one Windows 10 PC that you want to upgrade, one way, another way you could do, and the other option it presents you, is you can download this tool called Media Creation Tool. And so this will actually let you download the Windows installer, and you could then put that on like a flash drive. And from that flash drive, then you could take it to multiple Windows PCs and use that to upgrade multiple Windows boxes. So you will not be asked for a product key, apparently. When the upgrade is complete and you've connected to the internet, uh, you will now have a digital license for Windows 10. And you can confirm this. Uh, You go under settings, uh, update security, and look at activation. And it should say that you've got a valid Windows uh, digital license there. And that digital license is associated with that specific device. There's some sort of a a hardware identifier that is logged against that Windows license. So that machine is now legal for Windows 10. If you, for instance, if you wanted to later uh, download Windows 10 and completely reinstall Windows 10 and wipe that device and start over, uh, you will have the ability to do that. Now, Microsoft is not advertising this anymore. So, you know, some people say, well, is this legit? I mean, is this, you know, if I do this, am I going to have a real legal license to Windows 10? And I'm not a lawyer, and uh, but they do have a pretty good long discussion of why they believe this is totally legit. And basically what's happening here is it's just kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing that Windows isn't making a big deal out of it. But if you want to go out of your way to do this, uh, you can still get it for free. Episode 151, January 20th. So this leads into my tip of the week. And that is just limit who can see your photos. Go through all your social media, go to all the privacy settings, make sure you have these dialed back. Your pictures should not be public. They should only be available to your friends or your contacts. And if you have the capability to limit uh, even some of that, you might. Um, you should probably avoid associating your name uh, with photos anywhere, which you know, a lot of these services uh, and social media accounts allow you to tag people and tag yourself. 
you know, refrain from doing that. There are some of these things that will allow you to prevent others from tagging you. I would recommend that you do that as well. And finally, and this, this is going to be hard. I think Apple offers this automatically when you upload photos anywhere, I think. Facebook may be doing this as well, but whenever you take a photo, especially on a smartphone, there's a lot of metadata embedded in that photo. You know, some of the things like, you know, what the lighting was, what f-stop was used, you know, magnification, all that kind of stuff, but very often also your GPS coordinates. So be aware that if you're uploading photos somewhere, that, that photo may come with it exactly where you're located. You know, be thinking about that when you're taking a picture of your, you know, your young child's birthday party in your backyard or at the local park where they play all the time. Or if you have an abusive ex that is, you know, or stalkers or whatever, just you got to be aware how much information you're giving away when you post these photos on these public websites. Episode 160, March 23rd. This is an article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog, and it's titled Dirty Little Secret Extortion Emails Threatens to Give Your Family Coronavirus. And let me just read this article. Cybercriminals really do know no limits. Remember sextortion, where they say they'll spam your friends and family with X-rated photos of you that they got via malware? At least, they will unless you pay them $2,000. Well, Sophos security team just sent us a phish email they received that shows the stakes just got a lot higher and way more offensive. Now, the price is $4,000, and if you don't pay, then they're threatening to infect your family with coronavirus. As crazy as that sounds, the crooks are making that threat because they want you to believe that they really do have deep, dark insights into everything you do because they're deep inside your computer and your digital life, and because they can track you and your family family everywhere. So, And then they actually show a, a screenshot of what this email looks like. And... Um, you know, there's some redacted things in here or whatever, because this was actually sent to a person. But here's here's what this email looks like. The title is subject, and it has your name, and then it has your password. And it goes on to say, I know every dirty little secret about your life. To prove my point, tell me, does this ring any bell to you? And and uh, this part is redacted, but it's, it's the password. And it goes on. It says, it was one of your passwords. What do I know about you? To start with, I know all of your passwords. I'm aware of your whereabouts, what you eat with whom you talk, every little thing you do in a day. What am I capable of doing? If I want, I could even infect your whole family with coronavirus. Reveal all your secrets. There are countless things I can do. What should you do? You need to pay me $4,000. You'll make the payment via Bitcoin to the below-mentioned address. And if you don't know how to do this, just search how to buy Bitcoin on Google. And then it gives his, uh, his, his Bitcoin wallet address, and it goes on. It says, you have 24 hours to make the payment. I have a unique pixel within this email message, and right now, I know that you have read this email. If I do not get the payment, I will infect every member of your family with coronavirus. No matter how smart you are, believe me, if I want to affect you, I can. I will also go ahead and reveal your secrets. I will completely ruin your life. Nonetheless, if I do get paid, I will erase every little information I have about you immediately. You will never hear from me again. It's a non-negotiable offer, so don't waste my time and yours by replying to this email. Now, if you got that email, and if they had correctly put one of your old passwords in that email, you would probably be scared. But let me, let me finish the article, and then we'll talk about it. As we've seen so often in sextortion emails, the proof that they really can see deep into your online life is a password that very likely is one you used to have. 
but they've extracted it from publicly available data leaked in an old data breach. So even though it might have been a secret once, it hasn't been for years. What do you do? 1. Don't send any money. It's all a pack of lies. 2. Don't be scared. In scams like these, the crooks don't have any data on you, let alone details about all your family members and where they live. 3. Don't think of replying. It's tempting to contact the crooks just in case, but they have nothing to sell. You have nothing to buy. And by contacting them, you are just giving them another chance to scare you into making a mistake. And 4. Let people know about this scam. Make sure others don't fall for this horrible scam either. Let's face it, we already have enough to worry about at the moment. So that's the end of the article. Uh, and that's that's going to just be my tip of the week. Help your friends and loved ones understand that there are scams about. Tell them ahead of time because if someone were to get this email and you you know and you hadn't had the chance to warn them, you know they may feel that they've got 24 hours to comply. Uh, and who knows when the email was sent? You know maybe they get it the next day, uh, and they will feel rushed and scared, and they may just do this. So it's important to understand that that the with the way a lot of these emails work and sextortion ones were like the first one, and now it's basically being done uh, with the virus is they find some little bit of information about you that probably came from a data breach that makes it look like they have some keen insight, some backdoor access to you and your information. And what these bad guys are doing is they're taking all that information from old data breaches for passwords that have been cracked uh, and sending them out to the email addresses associated with those passwords and saying things like this, like, hey, recognize this password? Yeah, I know about it, which means I also know about all this other stuff, but they don't. So anyway, fair warning, that's your tip of the week. Not only be aware of this yourself, please spread the word to others because in times like this with, you know, the, the scarier it is, uh, the more it's, you know, it's trying, to be, it's trying to be exploited by the bad guys. And this is obviously a particularly heinous attempt, just horrific way to try to get people to pay them money and exploit this whole virus scare. Episode 163, April 13th. This, I ran across this, I think, on Twitter, and it's from some company I've never heard of called doist.com, D-O-I-S-T. Uh, I don't know who they are or what they do, but they published a nice little list of some general security tips, and so I took that list and kind of modified it a little bit. Uh, for those of us working from home, uh, you may have your corporate laptop or your corporate uh, phone uh, now at home and trying to do work on those devices. Now, if you work for a big company, they've probably got all the security stuff all figured out, and you're already know what to do. But if you're working for a smaller company, you know, maybe they really don't have their act together or really know what to do. Uh, and honestly, these, these tips that I'm about to give you really apply to everybody every day anyway, but they, you know, as you're working from home, you know, maybe you're working with sensitive company data instead of just your own data. So they have a little bit more, a little more oomph, a little more meaning for you right now. So I'm going to run through a list of uh, options here. And I'm going to go through them rather quickly. I don't have time to explain them all. Obviously, a lot of these are covered in my book. And there's also websites for these things too. And honestly, if you just go to doist.com, you'll probably find this article and there's some links in there as well. All right, so let's go through this list. There's about 10 things here, uh, nine actually. So first of all, encrypt your devices. Uh, and that includes, by the way, everything we're talking about here includes both mobile and uh, computers, your, your laptops, your desktops, iPhones, tablets, iPads, all that stuff. This includes all that stuff. So very briefly on a Mac, it, uh, all modern Macs come with something called File Vault, and I believe it's all on to by default now, so you should be good to go if you've got a modern Mac. But you can always go into System Preferences and uh, go into Privacy and Security and look for File Vault and make sure that's turned on. On Windows, uh, the article recommended using BitLocker, but unfortunately BitLocker does not come with Windows 10 Home. 
which is just a travesty. They really, that really needs to be table stakes. This should be on everything. But anyway, so if you don't have Pro or Enterprise or whatever the fancier, more expensive version of Windows 10 is that comes with BitLocker, you can look up another thing called Veracrypt, V-E-R-A-C-R-Y-P-T. And you can go to veracrypt.fr. I think that's France. Veracrypt.fr is their website. Uh, it's free and it's very powerful. Uh, entire disk encryption technology that if you uh, if you don't have BitLocker, that, that's a great alternative. And all modern Android and iOS devices are all encrypted by default, so you're already good there as long as you've got a modern phone. And if you don't, that's a great uh, reason to upgrade. And by modern, I think uh, this is probably done in the last three, four years at least. Now, uh, for your operating system, and again, this includes both your computer operating system and your mobile phone operating system, make sure you keep it up to date. There are security bugs found all the time. There have been some found recently, several in Windows 10, as a matter of fact. And it's some in uh, Apple iOS, iOS and in Mac OS. So uh, with these, especially when these security, the, the security updates are usually like the, the dot release. We call them dot releases because there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of periods in them. So if it's like, you know, 10.13.1 and now there's a 10.13.2, that's probably a security update. Those smaller releases definitely take those. Now, if you're going from like, you know, 10.13 to 10.14, those are much bigger things. Usually for those, I'll wait like a, you know, a few days to a week because most of those are just new features. Though a lot of times they come with security stuff as well. So install them soon, but you know, you might wait a couple days at least to make sure there's no major problems because there have been major problems lately with operating system releases. But keep an eye on it and keep up to date because that is very important. And the same goes for applications as well. So your key software applications, the key apps on your on your smartphones, the ones that are the, the ones that are the most popular and the ones that are built in, those are the ones the hacker's gonna go for because everyone's got them. So, you know, Microsoft Office, you know, Excel, Word, PowerPoint, uh, all of those, Outlook, your web browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge. And by the way, if you're using Internet Explorer, stop. <laughs> go get Firefox or something else. Internet Explorer should be not used by anybody anymore. The other common one that's that, that hackers like to go for are PDF readers, in particular Adobe's PDF reader. Don't use that. I would definitely not. I mean, you know, if you've got some business reason to use it because you need to edit PDFs or something like that, you may be stuck with it. Uh, there are some other ones that you could look at, though. There's one called Sumatra PDF. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's very bare bones. And there's another one called Nitro uh, PDF, which does cost money, and that might be a better replacement for Adobe. On a Mac, of course, you could use, you know, built-in preview app, which is pretty good. And honestly, on on any system, uh, a web browser. Almost all web browsers will render a PDF file. So if you just want to, you know, drag and drop that PDF file onto your Firefox or Chrome or whatever, it'll open it and read it too. And because most browsers are sandboxed and have some built-in protections, it's actually a little bit, uh, gives you a little extra layer of security going that way. All right, next up, dis disable automatic login on your smartphones. Make sure you set a pin code on those and also on your laptops as well. Make sure you set a, uh, a password on those and make sure that they kick in in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, on a mobile phone, you might have that kick in. It probably does this automatically, you know, in seconds, you know, 15, 30 seconds, something like that. On a laptop, you know, five minutes maybe. Uh, it might be a reasonable amount of time to have your your screensaver kick in and the lock and to lock down. Uh, also, you know, if your phone, if your phone supports it, you know, biometrics is, is fine. Fingerprint or face ID, those are fine too. Just make sure that there's some sort of protection on it. Uh, next up, use a password manager. Humans are horrible at remembering stuff and they're just not up to the task of remembering good passwords. If it's good enough for you to remember, it's probably not a good one, especially if you've got to remember a hundred of them, a hundred different ones, because you need to use a different password for every different thing. 
And because we're bad at that, we tend to like come up with what we think is one good password and use it everywhere. That's, that's a horrible practice. So the way you get around that is use a password manager and the password manager can generate crazy random passwords that you'll never remember and no one will ever be able to guess and they'll remember them for you. And then all you have to do is come up with one good master password for your vault. As always, you know, I usually recommend LastPass. It's great. The free version will do uh, what most people need in all situations, including mobile phones. But there are some other really good ones too. You might look at 1Password. That's uh, literally the number one and then password. Uh, or there's a new one that I I'm really need to look at myself. It's all free and open source uh, called Bitwarden, B-I-T-W-A-R-D-E-N. All of these basically do the same thing. So, you know, find one that looks right to you with the right, right price for you that works on the right devices to, for you. And though all three of the ones I just mentioned should work on Android, iOS, Mac, and PC. Next up, use two-factor authentication on as many accounts as you can. And this is becoming a lot more popular. And there's two ways that most of them do it now. Uh, they'll either send you, all of them are work around like a one-time pin code or and a, a short-lived pin code. It only lasts for a certain amount of time. And they will either text that to you, send it to your mobile phone via text message, or you install a particular app, which you synchronize with the service by scanning a QR code. That's kind of like that square barcode, those kind of funky new barcodes. You scan that with the app and then it, it synchronizes. And from that point on, that app will generate like a, usually a six digit code every 30 seconds. And because you're synchronized, the, the, the server knows what that code should be right now, too. So at a certain time of day, when it asks you to give your code and you give the code from the app, it knows the right code to expect. Now, for that two-factor authentication app, a lot of people will use Google Authenticator, and a lot of uh, services talk about Google Authenticator. Uh, however, I would use one called Authy instead, A-U-T-H-Y. Uh, it does the same kind of thing. Uh, but the nice thing with Authy is it will uh, you can set a password on that and, and securely synchronize that to multiple devices. And the nice thing about that is, and I got burned by this myself when I was using Google, Google Authenticator, is if you lose your device or it gets destroyed or it becomes unusable, uh, with Google, there's no way to back up those codes. Uh, so now you have to figure out some way to disable two-factor authentication on every service you had it enabled for, which is hard to do because it's supposed to be hard to do without having the pin code. That would be a real, real pain in the butt to do. Uh, whereas with Authy, if that happens, then you just sign into your account again and whatever new devices you have, or secondary device, if you've got more than one, will get all the same codes and you can use a different device for that. One other pro tip if you're doing that, uh, if you want to be super paranoid about that, whenever you're uh, using these Authy codes and you're scanning the QR codes, I print those uh, physically on paper. <laughs> it's like, so usually you're at a web page, like you're at you know google.com and you're in their privacy security section and you've got the QR code up on the screen because you can't get that you can't get that code back after you've scanned it. You can't go back into Google and show that exact same code again. You have to get a new code. And I think to do that, you have to turn it off and back on again. So anyway, you, you're given this code once. So, you know, now Authy should save it, but if you want to uh, really back that up and have a secondary um, backup in that belt and suspenders, uh, print that page. Uh, it'll have the QR code on it. And that way, and just file it away in some middle folder or somewhere safe. And if you ever get in a situation where you need to sync up that code again, and for some reason Authy's not working for you, you can actually find that piece of paper and scan it again, and you'll be in sync. And if you have a choice between this or SMS, definitely do the app version, the, the QR code version. It's much more secure. SMS is really not terribly secure. It's better than nothing. Um, but if you have a choice, definitely go with the QR kit, uh, code and use it uh, off -y. All right, next up, and these are kind of related. And a lot of modern devices, both computers and certainly smart devices, have this capability now. Uh, you can set up a find my device thing. 
Um, and that is a way for your device to kind of communicate with the cloud, uh, kind of its current location. And if for some reason you ever lose it or it's stolen, it can report its location. You can find out where it is. I use this myself when my family and I went on a trip to LA a few years back. I lost my smartphone on a ride. And that night, and after telling them where, you know, where I thought it was, I was able to actually look it up on the on the web through iCloud and and see that they see where it was and see that they found it because I saw it move. Uh, I saw my device move from where the ride was to the front office, so I was very happy. And the next day, I was able to get it back. So anyway, uh, these are very powerful for one of two reasons. First of all, it can help you find a lost or stolen device. And also, this same thing usually, in a lot of cases, allows you to remotely wipe that device. So um, if it's stolen and you don't think there's any way you're going to get it back, you can remotely remove your data from it. Now, of course, if it's encrypted, this should be safe anyway, but still it's kind of nice to have this capability. So uh, for Windows, uh, you go into Settings, uh, Update and Security, and there's a Find My Device option there. Uh, you can set it up there. And Mac OS, you set up iCloud first, which is almost impossible not to these days. Uh, and then you go into Settings under your name, iCloud, and then Find My Mac. You can set that up there. Uh, for Android, you can set up a Google account on your device, and I guess that's able, enabled by default. The Find My Thing is enabled by default. Default, you don't have to actually sign up for it once you've got your Google account set up. And on an iOS, which is iPhone and iPad, same kind of thing. You go into iCloud and go to Settings, go into Find My Device or Find My iPad, Find My iPhone, and enable that there. And by the way, you, um, whenever you get ready to sell or recycle a device... Notice I didn't say throw away. You should never throw away. You should either sell it or recycle it. Whenever you one of these devices you need to get rid of, uh, make sure you turn all these things off and wipe the device before you do that. And finally, the classic, uh, use a VPN, a virtual private network, whenever you're on public Wi-Fi. I would actually suggest most of our data plans on our cell phones are, are generous enough that it's not an issue, so I wouldn't even bother with Wi-Fi if you really don't need it. You know, but if you're going to sit in Starbucks and watch a HD movie or something. Okay, fine. You're probably not going to want to use your data for that unless you've got unlimited data, but use a VPN. And of course, laptops, same thing. Anytime you're on public Wi-Fi, public network at the airport, at the hotel, coffee shop, McDonald's, wherever, if it's public Wi-Fi, you should definitely be using a VPN. Now, of course, most of our internet traffic today is actually encrypted, which is good. That's HTTPS. Almost everything is going that way now, which is good. So in that sense, it's secure, but not everything is that way yet. So it's still good to have a VPN. I would avoid uh, most free VPNs. The ones I usually recommend are TunnelBear, which is very simple and easy to use, uh, reasonably priced. ExpressVPN is very good. It's very fast. It's very private, a little more expensive. Uh, or ProtonVPN, which is the, from the makers of ProtonMail. So give those a look. Episode 164, April 20th. There's a couple articles I looked into uh, to for this, and uh, one was from the Federal Trade Commission at the U.S., and it's got some good kind of overviews here. So I'm going to talk, start with that one. And this starts off basically with what's the definition of phishing. And it says, scammers use email or text messages to trick you into giving them your personal information. They may try to steal your passwords, account numbers, or social security numbers. If they get that information, they could gain access to your email, bank, or other accounts. Scammers launch thousands of phishing attacks like these every day, and they're often successful. The FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center reported that people lost $57 million to phishing schemes in one year. Honestly, I'm surprised it's not higher than that. That must be only individuals. I bet that's not companies, but we'll see. Anyway, scammers often update their tactics, but there are some signs that will help you recognize a phishing email or, or text message. Phishing emails and text messages may look like they're from a company you know or trust. They may look like they're from a bank, a credit card company, a social networking site, an online payment website, or an online store. 
Phishing emails and text messages often tell a story to trick you into clicking on a link or opening an attachment. They may say they've noticed some suspicious activity or a login attempt. They may claim there's a problem with your account or payment information. They may say you must confirm your personal information. They may send you a fake invoice. And I, by the way, I've seen that one happen a lot. Uh, and that's tricky, right? It's like a, just a quick email saying, okay, thanks for your purchase. Here's your invoice. And they might even mention, like, you know, your thanks for your purchase of $345.25. You know, here's your invoice. You're like, wait a minute. I didn't spend that money on something. What, something's wrong here. Someone mischarged me for something. When in actuality, no such thing ever happened. But they trick you into opening an, uh, the attachment, which is infected. Okay, back to their list. Three more things. It said uh, they may want you to click on a link to make a payment. They may say you're eligible to register for a government refund. Uh, or they may offer you a coupon for free stuff. So let me stop right right here that uh, before I get to the next article uh, and just say that these are all things they could be doing and variations on these same themes. But if you ever get an email that looks really fishy, uh, a great place to start to see if it might be a known hoax or a scam is snopes.com, S-N-O-P-E-S.com. The easiest way to go to, to search for this is just to go to that website and search on some key piece of text from the email. Sometimes the, the, the email subject is usually the, a, a good way to go. Uh, or some other key piece of text that would probably be unique. If you search on that, a lot of times that'll bring it right up. All right. And now I usually try to quote the website that I got these from, but I forgot to write this one down. So I forget where I actually got these from. But these are seven basic tips uh, that another website had for kind of recognizing scam emails. And I'm going to add some of my own commentary here as we go. Number one, legit companies don't request your sensitive information via email. Chances are, if you've received an unsolicited email from an institution that provides a link or attachment and asks you to provide sensitive information, it's a scam. Most companies will not send you an email asking for passwords, credit card information, credit scores, or tax numbers, nor will they send you a link from which you need to log in. Now, I'll stop there. That's that's kind of a strong statement. I'd certainly gotten legitimate emails from companies that say here's a link that you need to click to do something. Uh, here's a response to a post you had. Here's a response to your request for service. Here's uh, a link to a new deal we're offering. I have seen those, but it is true that uh, companies will generally not send you emails asking directly for personal information for you to provide, you know, login information or credit card numbers or anything like that directly from an email. Usually it'll direct you to log into the website directly and find uh, the message there or find a warning there or to call their publicly available number. And you can always check to make sure that's the real number for that company. So basically the, the, the advice there is if you do get in such an email and you're worried that it may be true, then instead of clicking on anything or using any information in the email itself, go to that company's website and either find their number and call them directly, log into your account and look and see if there's any kind of notification messages, uh, that sort of thing. And don't trust any of the numbers or links that are included in the email. All right. Number two, legit companies usually call you by your name. Phishing emails typically use generic salutations such as Dear Valued Member or Dear Account Holder or Dear Customer, but some hackers simply avoid the salutation altogether. This is especially common with advertisements. The phishing email below, and of course that's a picture you can't see, uh, says is an excellent example. And it was. It was just a really good-looking email about, hey, you've got a special discount on this, click here to get it, with offer code so-and-so. I mean, you know, we get these things all the time. But they avoid saying, you know, dear Carrie, uh, just jump straight to the advertisement. So, you know, that gives you one less thing maybe to spot as fishy. But it's also important to realize that 
So if they don't use your name, if they do use a generic salutation and it's from a company that should know your name, like you have an account with them, like your bank or, or Facebook or whatever, they know your name and, and Apple, Amazon, right? So if they start off with dear valued customer, or sometimes they'll try to use the email address. Like let's say your email address is Joe Bob 125 at yahoo.com. So they might start off with dear Joe Bob 125. Well, that's obvious. It came from your email address. Uh, but also realize that sometimes uh, email addresses have your full name in them. So if you were joe.smith at gmail.com, that's your email address. So it shouldn't be surprising if they say dear Joe. But it's also, also just because it does use your name doesn't mean it's legit. Um, sometimes in data breaches, they not only get your email address, they get your full name. Uh, or if they've hacked some some other person you know and they've raided their contact list, uh, their address book. Well, their address book is not only going to have your name; it's going to have your or your not only going to have your email address; it's going to have your full name too. So, it's it just because it goes one way doesn't mean it goes the other way. So, if it doesn't have your name, if if it if it uses some generic salutation, that's fishy. But if it uses your real name, that doesn't necessarily mean it's legit. All right, number three: legit companies have domain emails. Don't just check the name of the person sending the email. Check the email address by hovering over your mouse over the from address. Or sometimes you can click a little thing for more details to see the full address. Make sure no alterations, like additional numbers or letters, have been made to the domain name, basically. Check out the difference between the two email addresses as an example of altered mails. Michelle at PayPal.com and Michelle at PayPal23.com. Just remember this isn't a foolproof method. Sometimes companies make use of unique or varied domains to send emails, and some smaller companies use third-party email providers. So again, it's basically to say, make sure that the email address actually says, you know, paypal.com and not paypal23.com, or it really does say ebay.com, not ebay.somethingelse.com. Uh, those are common things. So those are, those are things that might tip you off that are wrong, but again, it's not foolproof. And the other thing to realize is that uh, it's not that hard, actually, to spoof the from address. They could actually say it's from apple.com, some email address at apple.com. And maybe it's like no reply at apple.com, right? So you, you, you're kind of given the clue there that even if you reply to that email, you shouldn't expect a response, but they've faked that from, they don't expect you to respond to that email. They want you to click a link. So the, in order to get you to bite in the scam, it doesn't require you to reply to the email. Therefore the from address doesn't even need to be legit. Number four, legit companies know how to spell. This is a good one. Possibly the easiest way to recognize a scammy email is bad grammar. An email from a legitimate organization should be well-written. Little known fact, there's actually a purpose behind bad syntax. Hackers generally aren't stupid. They prey on the uneducated, believing them to be less observant and thus easier targets. Now, I think that's kind of bogus. What I would say, actually, a lot of times is some of these things uh, originate from non-English speaking countries. Uh, or non-English speaking hackers. Uh, and so their attempts to generate a plausible English email ends up resulting in bad grammar or odd syntax, bad spelling, that sort of thing. And one other interesting thing to note is a lot of times these bad guys actually misspell things on purpose, or sometimes they even get really clever and they will use a different alphabet, like say the Greek alphabet or the uh, Cyrillic alphabet, which happens to have characters in the alphabet that look like English characters enough that you would probably read right over it and not notice it. For example, the Greek alpha would look like a lowercase a. And the reason they do this is because a lot of spam blockers, automated systems that are trying to catch and spam and put it in your junk folder before you ever even see it, are looking for keywords uh, and phrases, but they do it using the English version of those phrases. So when they're searching and they don't find it, then they let it through and then you see it and then you're, uh, you're trapped into thinking it was a real email instead of a junk email. 
All right, number five, legit companies don't force you to their website. Some phishing emails are coded entirely as a hyperlink, therefore clicking accidentally or deliberately anywhere in the email will open up a fake web page or download spam onto your computer. And that's true, and I've seen that sometimes. It basically, you can basically set up, because a lot of our email is actually in HTML format, which is the format of the web, so they can do fancy things like images and links and nice fonts and all that kind of stuff. But you can actually set up the entire web page such that if you clicked anywhere, it, it's basically like clicking some link. And if you did this accidentally, and then you all of a sudden are routed to some other web page, or it prompts you to download something, you just should immediately close those and uh, delete that email. Uh, number six, legit companies don't send unsolicited attachments. Unsolicited emails that contain attachment reek of hackers. Typically, authentic institutions don't randomly send you emails with attachments, but instead direct you, direct you to download documents or files from their own website. Like the tips above, this method isn't foolproof. Sometimes companies that already have your email will send you information, such as a white paper, that may require a download. In that case, be on the lookout for high-risk attachment types that include .exe, .scr, and .zip. When in doubt, contact the company directly using contact information obtained from their actual website. And again, this is mostly true. Uh, it's not that you'll never get an attachment from a company. The key in a lot of these things is unsolicited. So if you ask someone to send you a copy of a bill or an invoice or something like that, well, then you should expect that. But if you get an email out of nowhere with an invoice attached that you never asked for, that's where you might want to be suspicious. And finally, number seven, legit company links match legit, legitimate URLs. A URL is a universal resource locator or basically a fancy name for a web address. Just because a link says it's going to send you to one place doesn't mean it's going to. Double check the URL. If the link in the text isn't identical to the URL displayed as the cursor hovers over the link, then it's a sure sign you will be taken to a site you don't want to visit. If a hyperlink's URL doesn't seem correct or doesn't match the context of the email, don't trust it. Ensure additional security by hovering your mouse over the embedded links without clicking and ensure that the link begins with HTTPS. So this, this one can be a little bit tricky, but basically the, the idea is if you take your mouse and hover over a link, and this happens on a web page or pretty much anywhere, if you hover over the link, usually there's a little status area. Either it's right under your mouse pointer, or sometimes it's kind of like at the bottom or the lower left. And as you hover over links, it shows you the address, like whether that link is, if you click that link, what you're really clicking on. And very often in these scam cases, what, what the text actually says in the email, and it looks like a link, when you hover over it, the actual link is something else entirely. That's a big red flag. However, I will tell you that it is possible to fake those links. So, you know, even if the link looks legit, like it's, you know, HTTPS colon slash slash PayPal.com slash something, there are tricky ways to, even when you hover your mouse over that, to, to make it look like that's what it is when it's really something else. So generally speaking, the, if you get a link or a button that tells you to click on something, uh, just don't. Uh, if at all possible, just go to the actual website itself and try to find that same thing there. Or if it's a, you know, something you think you need to download in some really weird URL, you just you know go to the uh, go to that company's website, call them directly, or contact them directly through some official channel through their website to try to get that same information that way. So a couple of the points I want to make here, uh, and that is that using a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or some of these other ones is a good protection in a lot of these cases. Because even if you did accidentally click a link, like thinking it really was a, a, a real legit Apple link or a PayPal link or eBay link or Amazon link or Bank of America link or whatever, if you click it and bring up the web page and, and they have a really legit looking web page there, 
Um, if you have an account for that site, but your password manager is not offering to fill in the password for that site, then it's probably not the real site. In other words, your password manager is only going to offer to fill in the passwords on the legitimate site. That means that it's the exact host name associated with your account. So it's definitely paypal.com and not paypal23.com, for example. Because if you went to paypal23.com and you have a PayPal account, but your password manager doesn't know how to fill in a password for that, for that then that's a big tip that paypal23.com is not legit. There's one more little paragraph on this uh, page I want to read. It says, it doesn't matter if you have the most secure security system in the world. It takes only one untrained employee to be fooled by a phishing attack and give away the data you've worked so hard to protect. Make sure both you and your employees understand these specific email phishing examples and all the telltale signs of a phishing attempt. So yes, education is everything. And the sad fact is for, you know, for all the things we try to do, it only takes one screw up to bring everything down. So I know, no pressure, right? So uh, education is the main thing. You know, be cautious, be skeptical. And when in doubt, you know, just bypass the email directly, go directly to the website in question and log in directly there or call them using the phone number published on their uh, on their website. Or if it's, you know, some coupon or something, just blow it off and delete it. Episode 178, July 27th. So what can you do? And this will lead into the tip of the week. They already give a couple examples and I'll elaborate on these. And they said, so what can you do? You can make sure that the next router you buy automatically installs firmware updates. You can check to see whether your current router does so or makes it fairly easy to install firmware updates manually. So I'll stop there. Um, this is a new feature for a lot of modern routers and it's really essential. Basically what it says is, you know, their software, all software has bugs. And so... We, whenever there's a bug found, they ship out a new update with that as a fix for it. And if you're not monitoring that yourself, if, if, if your router, almost all modern routers at least allow you to wait to upgrade the firmware, but you have to log into the router yourself using the administrative account, find that part of, you know, part of the administrative config where it lets you download and install new firmware and then manually install it. If this is your only option, you definitely need to do this. If you're in the market for a new router, if your router is basically more than, I'd say, th probably three years old or maybe four years old, I would, you know, probably seriously consider getting yourself a new router and make sure that that new router has this functionality built in. In other words, it will automatically go and fetch software updates and up upgrade itself whenever they're available, that it's completely hands-off and automated. All right, their next point says, you should also make sure that the administrative password for your router has been changed from the factory default password. And then they give a really nice website, which I've actually put in the fourth edition of the book as well. It's called uh, routerpasswords.com. And this is basically an exhaustive list of every manufacturer make and model with the default administrative password that they come shipped with. And in many cases, they're really bad. I mean, they're obvious, like it's, you know, user admin, password, password. Some of them is user admin and password is blank. What that basically says is if the anything gets into your home network on the inside um, of your home network. This wouldn't be available, hopefully, from outside. I'll talk about that in a minute. But if there's any sort of a compromised device inside your network and it's looking around to try to hack your... And this would be a common thing to do. If I'm writing malware, I would totally do this. And it's, it has been done. Uh, if I'm on a network, I would say, hey, I wonder if I can hack the router. Uh, and it would try all these passwords that are well-known. And if it can hack that and install its own custom firmware and... 
Now it's hacked your router, and that's basically the gatekeeper to your entire home network. Then from there, it can try to hack every device in your network. So your router is a crucial piece of equipment, and you really need to make sure that it's kept up to date. And you need to make sure that you've changed that default administrative password. So if when you go to that website, routerpasswords.com, um, it'll tell you how to log in to your router's administrative webpage. Uh, and then you should go and find the password using a password manager, change that to something really good. And then while you're there, uh, make sure that your router's administrative inter interface is not accessible outside your home network. Uh, in other words, from the capital I internet, from anywhere on the planet. Some of them have this capability, and some of them have this capability turned on by default, which is just insane. So look around at the administrative web page. You probably have to poke around a little bit, but look for remote, uh, remote maintenance or remote config or remote administration. And if you find any of that stuff turned on for the WAN side, the wide area network, which is the fancy name for the Internet, the, the, big, the big network out there, turn that off. There's also a feature called UPNP. That's UP letter NP, the four letters, which stands for universal plug and play. And this was something I think Microsoft created many years ago that allows some devices, mostly game consoles, but it's been now uh, TVs and other things use it too. Basically allows them to talk to your router without you having to do anything and negotiate with the router and say, Hey, I would really like you to open up these ports in your firewall. And if you get any messages on those ports, send them to me, which, you know, very handy if because most people have no idea how to mess with their firewall and open up ports and do port forwarding. But most modern things have worked around that now and do not need this. And so you should, if you have UPnP turned on, turn that off. And that's basically the end of the article. They do they do mention one more thing, and that is if you sometimes if you have one of these older models, particularly like some of the Linksys models, there are a lot of um, open source communities out there that have rewritten uh, the software for those, and you can. Instead of installing the stock firmware uh, on that device, you can download and install these open source firmwares that take over the router and basically, from a software perspective, becomes a whole different thing. Uh, and they tend to be much more secure and have automatic update built in, all those things. But, the, you know, that's not really for the faint of heart. Uh, and honestly, if, you know, if you're at the point where you're considering that and you're not super techie, I would just go get yourself a modern router, uh, <laughs> get yourself a new router that has automatic updates built in and turned on by default. Episode 182, August 24th. I've been trying lately to make you aware of some really cool security and or privacy tools. And today we're going to talk about one called VirusTotal. So VirusTotal is a web-based service, though they make an application you can download as well. The basic idea is it's kind of, it's kind of like antivirus software, but it's really more of a one-off check of a file like so let's you know let's say somebody sends you an email attachment and you don't have an app you don't have antivirus installed on your computer or maybe you don't maybe you don't trust your antivirus to be 100 percent accurate which is you know that's that happens so you get this attachment and you're worried about it or maybe you actually even want to forward that you got it from somebody and you want to forward it to somebody else but before you do you want to make sure that that file is not infected you can take that file and upload it to the VirusTotal website, and it will scan it for you. And it's not just one scan. They actually have like 70 or so different antivirus scanning tools built in that all look at it. And what's really happening kind of behind the scenes is, is this is in conjunction with a lot of antivirus and security researchers 
who are trying to improve their products. So it's a kind of a win-win. So you upload this thing, all these other guys get a chance, all these other tools get a chance to look at it and evaluate it and see if they think it's malicious or not. And oftentimes you'll, you'll get a mixed bag. You'll get some, some of the 70 things will say it's bad. And some of the 70 things will say it's good. And it doesn't tell you what to do at that point. You have to make a decision based on, you know, what the results are, but it's also a way for these companies to help improve their products. Also interesting tool, uh, interesting uh, aspect of this tool is you can give it uh, web addresses or URLs or URLs, universal, Re- universal resource locators, the technical name for a web address. So if you're worried about going to a particular website, you can copy and paste the website address and paste it into VirusTotal as well. And it will, on your behalf, go to that website, load it up and look for any sort of malicious JavaScript or other malicious links on that site. Uh, or if it happens to be a known uh, phishing site or whatever, it can come back and tell you whether or not it thinks that website is a safe place for you to go to. As I said, you could actually download virus total app locally. If you want, you can also, they make a browser extension for Firefox and Chrome and others. Uh, so that when you go, like you can right click on a link and it's just built right in, you could tell, you know, you can tell virus total to scan that link right there in the browser. Uh, if you go to download a file, you can have virus total look at that file for you. And finally, there's another way you could do it. You could actually email them as well. If you get, if you get an email with an attachment and you're worried about the attachment, you could actually just forward that email to scan at virustotal.com. Uh, and it'll scan it that way too, and send you back a report. So there's a, there's a couple caveats to this. And one of them is privacy. So be aware that any file that you send, or even any web address you send, multiple third parties uh, are now free to keep. And just to make this clear, let me, let me read a little snippet from uh, the privacy policy uh, on their webpage. It says, files and URLs sent to VirusTotal will be shared with antivirus vendors and security companies so as to help them in improving their services and products. We do this because we believe it will eventually lead to a safer internet and better end user protection. By default, any file or URL submitted to VirusTotal, which is detected by at least one scanner, is freely sent to all those scanners that do not detect the resource. Additionally, all files and URLs enter a private store that may be accessed by premium, in other words, uh, security and anti-malware companies, by premium virus total users so as to improve their security products and services, unquote. So bottom line there, just be aware that whatever you send them, you know, if it's a document that contains personal or private information or things like that, um, you know, hopefully you can uh, hope that these companies will not abuse that, but some human might actually see what that is. And the one other interesting ironic part about all of this is uh, a lot of people would claim that virus total is actually helping the bad guys because this all there's nothing preventing bad guys from doing this as well so if i'm going to create a new malware i might want to know if the antivirus companies out there will be able to detect it or not Uh, so i might tweak it using this tool to see if i can slip it past them and if i could slip it past them then i know that i could slip it past all the antivirus tools that are out there so anyway like any tool can be used for good or for ill Episode 185, September 14th. So this is from Naked Security. It says, Internet scammers are always looking for a better way to separate unwitting device users from their money. As with all other endeavors, they've learned that it pays to advertise. At Sophos Labs, we recently researched a collection of scams that exploit web advertising networks to pop up fake system alerts on both computers and mobile devices. The goal? To frighten people into paying for a solution to a problem they don't even have. It's not exactly a new trick. 
Scareware pop-ups have been used for years to prompt people into downloading fake virus protection and other malicious software, including ransomware. But the latest variations find other ways to cash in on fake alerts, using them as the entry point to technical support scams or prompting their victims to purchase fraudulent apps or fleeceware off a mobile app store. Browser developers have done a lot to limit the damage that can be done by malicious pop-up sites, including recent fixes by Mozilla that attempt to limit the ability of malicious web pages to slow down and lock up the Firefox browser. And you'll understand why that's important here in a minute. But even if the scammers don't lock up your web browser, they can make it appear that something has gone terribly wrong, and that you need to do something immediately about it. That's where the potential damage begins, with the victims allowing the fraudsters to gain access to their device and to install and extract payment for totally unneeded and potentially harmful software. These scams reap tens of millions of dollars from their victims each year. A whole industry has sprung up around fake alert scams, including scam toolkit developers and commercial platforms for managing malicious advertising campaigns. Fortunately, these scams are usually pretty easy to spot if examined critically. Like phishing messages, they often contain messages with strange phrasing, capitalization, and grammar or spelling mistakes. And sometimes they even include a countdown in order to make you more nervous, after which they suggest your phone or computer will be damaged. And some technical support scams will play computer-generated voice messages urging you to take action. But all of these scams have one very specific thing in common. They go away when you close your browser. While mobile fake alerts and similar pages on desktop browsers can easily be closed, browser lock support scam pages often use scripts that make it difficult or impossible to close the web browser normally or navigate away from the page, including things like, and there's a list here, 1. Forcing the browser user to full screen size, 2. Hiding or camouflaging the mouse cursor, 3. Launching never-ending file downloads, 4. Popping up login messages that request a username and password. And 5. Attempting to capture keystrokes to prevent navigation away from the page with keyboard shortcuts. Using Task Manager on Windows or Force Quit on macOS may be the only way to escape some of these pages short of a reboot. That and not allowing the browser to restore pages from the last session when relaunching. However, the best way to prevent most of these attacks is to cut off the ad networks that they rely on. Privacy tools such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Privacy Badger blocks trackers used by less reputable ad networks. Reputation tracking services can help as well, blocking domains known to host or deliver malicious ads. As with phishing, education is also key. If you're on your guard for these scams, you're less likely to fall for them. All right, I really thought that was interesting. I actually have not seen this myself, probably because I use Privacy Badger and uBlock Origin and DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, and I have several of these. And of course, Firefox has a lot of this built in now too, that just outright blocks these ad networks from even being able to load. So they're, you know, these little pop-up schemes can't even come into your browser because they're blocked at the, at the source, basically. But I really thought it was interesting, some of, the, some of these techniques that they use to basically make it almost impossible for you to close that browser page. And the other thing to realize is a lot of these pop-ups are made to look just like, you know, local pop-ups. Like it looks like a Windows, uh, a Windows operating system pop-up or a Mac OS pop-up. Like they're meant to look, and they can tell what kind of system you're running because your browser helpfully tells it that you're either on a Mac or a, or a PC. And so they pop up, but the thing is, these windows can't be moved outside of the browser. Like if you try to click and drag this window and it doesn't go past the edge of your web browser, then it's not an operating system window. It's actually a pop-up from that web page, which means that it's not real. But I mean, you know, how, how clever is that to basically try to make your computer or at least your browser lock up like it's not responsive 
and then pop up a window saying, hey, you've got a virus or, hey, you've got, you know, your computer is needs to, its performance is suffering and you need to download this software that will make the performance better. Basically, they're <laughs> they're making it worse and then trying to convince you that the reason it's it's worse is, is because you're infected or you need their help and then you pay for these things that you don't need. And last but not least, episode 193, November 9th. So as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, when COVID hit, video conferencing became the norm, both from working and learning from home, uh, even talking to your relatives, because with social distancing and the pandemic, we were all encouraged to stay home more and to get together in person less. Uh, there were plenty of great video conferencing solutions already available, but for whatever reason, Zoom became the de facto standard. It was not the largest. It was not the best, um, but... I, it's dirt simple to use and it was very easy and kind of fun to say and <laughs> and just kind of shot to the top of the list so uh at the time they claimed that they had end-to-end -end encryption uh they didn't because true end-to-end -end encryption means that the only parties able to view the video hear the audio would be the two people involved or the many people involved if it's a, if it's a multi-way call and technically what it means being end to end is you're using a computer or a iPhone or a tablet or something as your way of running the zoom client. Uh, and so are they, and your endpoint, that device is where the video and audio is encrypted and decrypted so that as it's traveling the internet, going through your internet service provider and various other internet backbone companies, and crucially in this case, zoom, before it goes on to the other end to reach the, your called party, end-to-end -end encryption would mean that it, that it is encrypted through that entire path. And what Zoom used to have, and actually they still have, so I'm going to tell you how to make sure you know what you're doing, was point-to-point -point encryption. So it was we always talk about Alice and Bob, right? When we, when we do en encryption and crypto stories, we always bring in Alice and Bob. So Alice and Bob want to have a Zoom call, and they want that call to be completely private. So the video, as it leaves, let's say Alice has an iPhone and Bob has a, has a PC, a Windows PC, and they've got their webcam set up and they want to do a Zoom call. It may be, and it used to be, that the, th that data streaming between Alice and Bob on their two devices was encrypted. But it was encrypted from Alice to Zoom and then from Zoom to Bob, but not at Zoom, meaning that Zoom could see everything that was going on inside that conference call. So you can kind of think of it like there's a, a tunnel, a pipe between Alice and Zoom and another pipe or tunnel between Zoom and Bob. And that tunnel is opaque. Nobody from the outside of that tunnel can see what's going through that tunnel. But it does end at Zoom and then restarts at Zoom before it gets to its final destination. And while it's in transit through Zoom's servers, Zoom has full unencrypted access to that data stream. And they still have that now, basically. Um, so there are two new encryption methods for Zoom calls. One is called enhanced encryption, and one is called end-to-end -end encryption. So the enhanced encryption is end-to-end -end encrypted. It's encrypted all the way from Alice to Bob through Zoom. But Zoom chooses the encryption key and maintains the, the encryption key. So... Basically, that means Zoom still has full access to it. It's encrypted as it goes through Zoom, but Zoom has the ability to decrypt it because they have the key. 
Now, that's much more convenient. You don't have to worry about uh, dealing with the keys, but it's not that much harder to do true end-to-end encryption. Uh, and when you set that up, then you generate and and you keep the key, and through some really nifty cryptological math, your keys are able to be exchanged with Bob remotely without Zoom getting them. I'm not going to get into how that works. It's called public key encryption. You can read about it in my book uh, or on the web. But trust me, it's possible, it's doable, and it's mathematically sound. And when you do this, Zoom cannot do it. Now, of course, you're still basically trusting Zoom not to somehow surreptitiously make a copy of that key because you're still using the Zoom application, right? So, you know, I'd say it's still technically possible for Zoom to lie to you and still get a copy of that key. So in some ways, we're trusting that they don't do that. But at least it's a step in the right direction. So I wrote an article about this. You can find it on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com with pictures and everything, and it'll show you how to enable this feature uh, and then to set it up for each individual call. But anyway, so it's, it's really a two-part process. And I'm going to read to you from this Lifehacker article, which I also reference in there that you can look at. Um, that runs through the steps real quick, but it's probably better to see it uh, with pictures. But anyway, I'll do it just for the sake of the tip of the week uh, so you can get an idea of what uh, what needs to be done. So first of all, you'll have to create a Zoom account if you haven't if you don't have one already. Uh, I think you could use Zoom before without both people on each end having an account. But part of the part of the compromise here is that we don't want it to be used by the bad guys and not have any accountability. So they do force you to create an account. And with that account, when you log into that account on the web browser, and you can't do it through the app, at least not yet, you'll have to enable end-to-end encryption on your settings first. And then once you've done that, you'll need to make sure you download the latest version of the uh, the Zoom client on your iOS device, on your smartphone, on your Mac, on your PC. Make sure you got the latest software. Uh, if you do have the latest software, you still might need to restart it to make sure that it's communicating and getting the latest version of your settings. And then whenever you start a meeting, either when you an ad hoc meeting with your personal room, or if you schedule a meeting, there's an option there in the settings and advanced settings for that meeting to turn on end-to-end encryption. Anyway, let me just read this article and, and, and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. From Lifehacker. A technical preview of Zoom's end-to-end encryption will roll out to free and premium users in the next Windows, Mac, and Android app updates with iOS and iPad soon to follow. Enabling Zoom's end-to-end encryption makes video calls much more secure, and but there's a catch. Zoom's end-to-end encryption disables several other features, including private chats, breakout rooms, and more. We'll go over all the compromises that Zoom's E2EE end-to-end encryption, in other words, setting entails, but first let's talk about how Zoom encrypts your video sessions and why you should consider turning it on, no matter the cost. According to Zoom's blog post, announcing the new encryption options, Zoom end-to-end encryption uses the same 256-bit AES-GCM encryption that secures Zoom meetings by default, but Zoom manages the encryption and sharing the keys with participants. Users with end-to-end encryption enabled generate their own encryption keys locally and then share it with others in the call. Zoom never knows the key and cannot decrypt the meeting's data. If that's confusing, the bottom line is that end-to-end encryption makes it impossible for anybody outside the call to access the meeting or view its data, including Zoom itself. That boost in privacy is a welcome change, especially after Zoom's privacy policies came under scrutiny as COVID-19 drove up the app's popularity. As mentioned, turning on Zoom's end-to-end encryption disables several key Zoom features, including breakout rooms, group polling, join before host, cloud recording, streaming, I'm not sure what that refers to, live transcription, one-on-one private chat, meeting emoji reactions. The good news is end-to-end encryption can be enabled and disabled per meeting so you don't lose access to these features permanently. This gives you the freedom to set the level of privacy and functionality you want for each call you host. 
Also, keep in mind the feature is in Phase 1 technical testing, so some of these restrictions could be lifted by the time Phase 2 rolls out in 2021. However, in order to use end-to-end encryption during Phase 1, all participants must have the setting turned on before joining an encrypted meeting. How to turn on end-to-end encryption in Zoom. You need to turn on Zoom's end-to-end encryption in your user settings before you can use it during a meeting. So 1. Go to Zoom's web portal. 2. Go to Settings, then Meeting, then Security. Then 3. Enable, quote, Allow use of end-to-end encryption is enabled, unquote. Then, click Turn On when prompted to verify the change. Next, select your default security level. And like I said, there's two options here. First one, end-to-end encryption is best if you want to keep using all of Zoom's features. And it says, parenthetically, you can still use end-to-end encryption for individual calls. So I guess there must there's a default security level. So that this is the default you're setting, not the individual one. And then the second one, of course, is end-to-end encryption, which will use end-to-end encryption for all meetings, but restricted features will always be disabled for calls that you host. And I'm not sure why that's true either. And then you click save. Anyway, and then when you go to create an actual meeting um, for each individual meeting, you can tweak this once it's enabled globally. You can select for each meeting whether whether you want to use it or not. All right, everybody, that'll wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed the best of 2020. We'll be doing that every year around this time. Be sure to check out my brand spanking new Facebook page. Just go to bit.ly slash firewalls-facebook. And that's a capital F on firewalls and a capital F on Facebook. And if that's too much to remember, just go to firewalls.stopdragons.com. If you scroll down on the right-hand side, you'll see my little social media buttons there, and you'll see the Facebook button. You can just punch that. Please spread the word about the 200th episode. It's next week. I can't believe it's already here. It's really going to be huge. Lots of great stuff to give away. Lots of cool information and a wonderful interview with Bruce Schneier. Until then, everybody, have a happy and safe, safe holiday. Please do your social distancing. Please wear masks. Vaccines are on the way. We just need to hold out a little while longer. Take care, everybody. And until the big 200th episode next week, take care and don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>